This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast where we talk with authors about the most recent monographs in the field of folklore studies. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast where we talk with authors about the most recent monographs in the field of folklore studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the podcast. Before beginning, it will be helpful to briefly discuss what is meant by folklore as a field of study. Folklore privileges the informal over the institutional, and the vernacular over the cosmopolitan. Folklore may look at traditional forms that we popularly associate with the term, like folktales, festivals, riddles, proverbs, epics, and many more. Folklorists, however, are also equally defined by their theoretical and methodological approaches as they are by, their t- by the topics of their research, and their research can examine a variety of cultural forms that we may less commonly associate with the field. These may include craft traditions, stand-up comedy, as well as narratives shared by online communities or people sharing the same occupation. It may include oral histories and even college football fandom all in hopes of better understanding the diverse and changing cultural worlds we inhabit. Today I talk with Dr. Christina Maggs of the School of Oriental and African Studies about Chinese heritage in the making, experiences, negotiations, and contestations, a volume she recently co-edited with Lund University's Marina Svensson and published with Amsterdam University Press. In recent years, cultural heritage, with its well-supported international and national government's frameworks, has become an increasingly relevant part of folkloristic research. Heritage studies bridges both the public or applied side of the folklore discipline and the academic, and merges studies of local communities and vernacular practices with questions of policy, rights, and governmentality. In China, the state's enthusiastic adoption of heritage discourses for their potential for economic development has empowered communities to carefully engage with the state in interesting ways that help advance the field of heritage studies and our understanding of heritage studies as folklorists. This discussion will be interesting for ways in which China's well-funded, top-down approaches to cultural intervention meet with bottom-up work already being done in communities. In doing so, it reveals valuable perspectives on cultural on a variety of cultural traditions, while also providing an interesting lens through which to better understand the variety of stakeholders involved in China's heritage regime. I hope you'll join me in listening to this fascinating conversation. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, an occasional podcast in which we talk with authors of the latest monographs in the field of folklore studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Christina Maggs to discuss Chinese heritage in the making, experiences, negotiations, and contestations. This is a volume she co-edited with Marina Svensson and published through Amsterdam University Press. Christina is lecturer in Chinese politics at University of London's School of Oriental and Asian Studies. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Timothy and everybody. It's good to be here. Uh, so first of all, I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to study uh, questions of cultural heritage in China. Well, um, that's actually a long story. So um, as you said, I'm actually um, a sonologist and political scientist in training. And uh, yeah, I was just interested in, um, in this current heritage fever that has been um, sweeping across China. And I was just interested in how or why um, the PRC suddenly decided to kind of reinterpret its history. And I, I just found so many um, clues, you know, in the media, in, in, in kind of, um, local government uh, interests and heritage. So I was just more and more engaged in, um, you know, learning more about this and, and looking at what the Chinese government is actually doing and what effects it has on the local uh, communities and on local cultural practices. Oh, great. Um, so, so as you suggested, uh, heritage is sort of this in, in, extremely important topic in China today. 
Um, it's also for, for listeners of this podcast, an incredibly important sort of subfield in folklore studies, uh, as well as in anthropology. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, sort of how you came to put this volume together and what, what beyond sort of seeing or noticing this trend sort of became the inspiration for, for the volume. So the, the volume actually um, came from uh, a small conference that Marina Swenson organized in June 2015, which was called Cultural Heritage in China, Contested Underpinnings, Images, and Practices. And the idea was just to focus more on the contestations, kind of the bottom-up contest- contestations that we see um, as a result of, um, you know, kind of central um, or state uh, discourses and practices, especially looking at policy and its effects. So um, it all started with you know us twenty people just meeting and um, and discussing issues, and then we found that there were many uh, commonalities that we saw, for example, in, across cases in terms of um, you know official discourses and their effects and how people um, might you know use certain parts of official discourses and actually in order to enhance their agency vis-a-vis the state, um, and also there's just the richness of. Um, all these case studies that were discussed at the at this workshop um, were so just so interesting and so thrilling that we decided that we just we should um, yeah put them all together into an edited volume and and kind of look at um, kind of similar things across cases and then kind of try to find um, you know kind of what 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 was actually happening in China what kind of effect does um, you know does heritage have in China how is, how does heritage making unfold. Um, in, in different areas, geographical areas across China, um, and with what with what effects. So um, yes, so that's why we, we kind of um, decided, uh, you know, that we wanted to engage in this book project, and then we discussed how we could approach this. Um, we discussed who we actually wanted to become part of this program uh, or this, this this project, and and then we kind of started off from from there. Uh, great. Uh, so. One of the, I guess one of the big things for background for some of our listeners who maybe don't know as much about China, um, you sort of, the book locates the beginning of China's heritage term uh, in the 1990s. Uh, can you give the listeners a little bit more background uh, about this heritage term and and how it sort of manifests in China today? Sure. Um, yeah, we started in the 1990s, although of course heritage has been um, an issue, you know, in Chinese history over, you know, over centuries. So, um, but but what we want to highlight is the um, the changes that have been unfolding since the reform and opening period commenced. So, obviously, um, you know, China or Chinese people have discussed heritage, um, but mostly in form of, um, for example, using the term cultural relics, um, which which is a term that came in um, at the turn of the century during the Qing Dynasty, but was more um, actually. Uh, became, became more of an issue, you know, during the um, kind of the Republican era, Civil War era. So um, heritage has been an issue in, in Chinese politics and Chinese debates for a long time. You can also think of, you know, the, um, the Mao era and how heritage was um, kind of discussed as something uh, very negative, you know, seen as feudal and backward and, and actually used as a negative example of, you know, how, you know, society should progress and kind of leave the past behind um, and you know, shake off um, all these you know superstitions um, that that the CCP you know considered the you know, local people to have. Um, so so we kind of we start with the with the 1990s because after the Chinese opening to the you know global community international community, um, China became part of the UNESCO and uh, and then also uh, adopted um, parts of, of this UNESCO discourse and therefore also uses the term heritage, uses um, similar terms such as cultural space um, or, or, you know, just refers to, to many things such as community participation, authenticity, many things that have been discussed in the international heritage regime. So that's why we start in the 1990s and, and kind of look at how China's kind of opening to the world, uh, globalization, in China, modernization um, kind of has has led to China adopting, but also transforming um, international heritage discourses, uh, and thereby kind of adapting it to local um, circumstances and interests. 
So, and then looking at not only how how the, has the state um, adopted and transformed these um, discourses, but also what happens on the ground. So, once China um, has become part of the UNESCO and has um, not only adopted these discourses, but also has, um, for instance, nominated World Heritage sites or um, ratified the you know the new convention of intangible cultural heritage safeguarding. Um, so, what happens next? So, how does how do, how do people react? Um, how do they, you know, participate in this heritage making process? Um, do they, you know, agree, you know, with official discourses? Do they not? Who does and why, or who does not, and what do they do? So, what are the kind of the responses to um, kind of the state's activity in this in this regard, but also maybe um, just the effects of becoming part of this international heritage regime on local communities, and um, kind of what responses do we see? And our book particularly looks at um, this interplay between official activities in terms of um, discourses, but also conservation practices, for instance, and um, and and uh, contestation as a as a form of response. So, of course, we we also have examples in the book that um, that show that it doesn't always have to be a um, you know kind of a um, with a response of, of contestation or negotiation or even resistance, it can also be um, more a, a response that is shaped by um, kind of being happy about, you know, state interests in, in heritage or the new kind of spaces that are opening up for um, community participation in certain areas um, or, or certain, um, you know, funds or, or opportunities are, that are just emerging through, you know, this, this more open engagement with heritage um, so there's there's different things that can actually um, that we can see in China and that are that are constantly um, you know kind of changing as well. So there are very many different kinds of responses to China's opening and to China's embrace of the international heritage regime. But we focus a bit more on these you know these tensions that we sometimes see and these negotiations um, due to the fact that there's different interpretations of history. There's different discourses that have been there. Previously and now, the, you know, that have to engage with the new incoming discourses, or also um, in terms of practices, you know, the the tensions that arise between um, cultural practices that have been there and that are now um, in part reframed, you know, to to make them more um, marketable, you know, as a tourism experience, or um, or, or just that they have maybe um, just re- repackaged uh, or depoliticized if it's something religious. Sometimes we see. That um, the state kind of steps in to, um, yeah, to suddenly you know embrace a cultural pract- a practice that has or a religious practice that was um, criticized as superstitious before, but then kind of tries to um, depoliticize it um, in a way that um, they kind of mutes and any any opposition you know you know from from local communities. So there's many many different things happening on the ground, and that's what we're really interested in. And that's why we, we really wanted to focus on rich case studies that exemplify what's happening across China. What, um, the book sort of locates, uh, sorry, the introduction in particular um, sort of brings the focus towards a, a subfield called critical heritage studies. Um, for the sake of listeners who maybe are less familiar with this theoretical framework, can you sort of give us an introduction to critical heritage studies? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, so critical heritage studies is, is, is uh, you could say, a movement or, or a group of um, researchers who have um, you know, formed an association of critical heritage studies. And um, this is not to say that, um, you know, that there weren't any academics before that were not critical. Um, that's absolutely not the case. Of course, many academics have pointed to um, you know, the adverse effects of um, heritage conservation practices, for instance, or tourism. So there has been research on critical research on um, you know, heritage and heritage policies. However, um, what what these um, researchers um, who have founded this association have pointed out is that um, critical heritage studies should also be about um, the power relations between different stakeholders um, that are involved in heritage making, heritage conservation, etc., and also kind of bring the, the voice of, of marginalized groups to the forefront uh, and, and kind of um, help them to, to become part of this heritage-making process by, by um, showing that they're often actually um, yeah, marginalized in the sense that they are neglected 
uh, and then they do not participate and, and kind of cultural heritage studies uh, tries to um, push for greater community participation by demonstrating uh, these adverse effects of power relations. Um, so, so this is an association that was founded, um, I think, I think it was 19, uh, 2010 or something, but the, the first um, conference that they put together was in 2012 in Gothenburg. And since then, they have been biannual conferences um, in various, on various continents. Um, so in th this year, actually, I think it's the fourth conference will be organized in Hangzhou in China, which is very fitting, um, uh, in September. So, so this is a, a, kind of a community of very, you know, of many different um, academics from different fields that, that kind of come together to ask new questions uh, or more critical questions um, related to heritage. And that's, that's kind of our, our starting point because we, we wanted to contribute to this debate. We wanted to um, shed light on, you know, on these um, you know, effects of, of, you know, power relations and, and the marginalization of groups um, in China. So, so we kind of, we, we come from this, um, from this perspective, we, we, we try to embrace, you know, this, this call for uh, more critical heritage studies. Um, but we also wanted to look at these questions in China. So to not only, um, you know, because many heritage studies have focused on similar questions in, in other countries, um, particularly democratic countries. So we thought it would be interesting to, to, to kind of use these, this, this perspective, this lens, um, to interrogate how these you know, processes um, apply to China, a country that is uh, Asian, so non-Western, and also authoritarian. So, so, so many um, processes that we might see in other countries might, may, may uh, play out very differently. In China, so so this is kind of our starting point that we think um, this is a very important uh, perspective to have, and we particularly think that China would be a very good case, um, you know, to, to analyze these these processes, and that's why the book also starts off with this, um, you know, kind of with this narrative to to kind of and to reiterate this call for more um, critical heritage um, studies related um, work. And so for me, this is one of the really interesting parts of the book is the way that because it's sort of a new subfield within China studies to look at heritage. And so many of the contributors are not sort of scholars of heritage by training. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how, how you, the, how these different scholars were able to come together around this sort of uh, and how you were able to bring these different scholars with different sort of disciplinary trainings uh, together around this question of critical heritage, because the chapters themselves hang together relatively well along this theoretical framework. Yes, you're right. Um, so what, what happened is that, um, that obviously many people who, who have studied China, so many Sinologists, um, they were getting more and more interested in heritage, as I said, as a uh, kind of a response or um, result of you know growing state engagement in heritage, more and more um, you know just happening on on various levels in China. So uh, many Chinese uh, studies um, academics who are you know they most most academics are they have a, a focus or a training in sinology, but then they're also such like like myself, I'm a political scientist, so I have a country focus and I have uh, a disciplinary focus. And then other um, researchers who are Chinese China scholars, but then have an anthropological background or, or are historians. Um, so they, they all similarly focus on heritage-related issues, um, may, maybe from different perspectives. So, so we kind of, we try to come together at, at this workshop and look at this, you know, this, this topic of, um, contestation and, and negotiation. Um, and we found that although we have these different um, approaches, there's much that we can say um, on this topic that actually speaks to um, each other. So, for example, we have um, chapters that are written by historians that really show kind of uh, the historical ev ev um, evolution of, you know, the interpretation of a certain site, you know, how that has changed from being something, you know, negative or, um, or considered to be feudal and, and 
and backward to something that is now embraced and, and promoted for um, for consumption. So, for example, in the first part, we have two chapters, um, one by Suzette Cook and one by Hong Jan, um, who you know who look at um, this you know this, this kind of this transformation of, of heritage in a, in a discursive way over time. Um, and on one hand, um, Suzette Cook, for example, looks at um, um, Qinghai province and, and how uh, a residence of a, a Sino-Muslim warlord um, in, uh, during the Civil War period, actually, uh, has now been kind of reinterpreted as, you know, as kind of a symbol of, of nation building. Um, and so, so she's, she takes a historical approach by, by kind of retracing how this interpretation of this uh, Mabufang's residence has changed and how it now has become a, a museum and looking at, you know, how um, in the museum, you know, this, this history has actually been portrayed and how that may differ from local understandings. Um, and, and so you can really see from by taking this historical approach how there, there, there is space for, you know, contesting um, these various interpretations. And similarly, um, Hongzhan, for instance, she uh, looks at the um, Italian concession in Tianjin and, um, and actually has found that something that, again, something that has been um, kind of seen as a, Kind of a symbol of Chinese humiliation has now been turned into this, uh, you know, a symbol of uh, potential rebranding of Tianjin, you know, as this cosmopolitan city that you know has um, so many, you know, historical remains from from various countries, and the Italian concession has been picked out as you know the place um, that that can be showcased to to tourists. Um, so I think by taking this approach, you know, it's it's a it's it's a kind of a very chronological and um, historic, like very um, in detail discussion of historical processes, but it still kind of shows the the contestation around um, kind of and the narrative of the, the narratives and interpretations of history. Um, and similarly, we have anthropologists who who kind of find similar um, contestations, you know, in when um, during field work in in certain lo- lo- localities, who then show. Um, how, for instance, um, in the in the Beijing uh, Gulao district, you know how there's different narratives of, um, you know, or memories actually of, of this Gulao district and and how they um, contest each other, how they um, you know lead to conflicts when when the city has a kind of redevelopment plan um, and and the local community is is not happy with that or it kind of is relocated actually as a result of this. And this is something that um, Florence Pesabudo and uh, Jaime Nguyen have discussed um, in the book as well. And then we also have, um, we, have uh, we have academics who, who are more coming from the conservation studies or um, architecture side. And they, um, they similarly um, have described how uh, the reuse or kind of revitalization, for instance, of temples um, has led to contestations. And uh, while they're, um, they have also focused on kind of how the building has changed and how um, so the built environment has changed, which is, of course, their their focus. They still um, were able to really, in detail, show um, you know how how different stakeholders have different opinions of how to reuse, for instance, a temple, um, which Louis Tam describes um, in her chapter, um, when, where she discusses uh, the revitalization behind the Jiuzhu uh, Temple in in uh, Beijing, um, which was changed into a a hotel and a, kind of, and a private club, so so kind of it was split into different projects and kind of revamped, but in a actually in a in a very um, in a positive sense. So so the UNESCO, for instance, um, gave it a prize for kind of revitalizing and and, rest, and restoring, you know, it's certain historical parts of the building. Whereas other stakeholders, local communities, local governments, um, were more critical of the revitalization project. Um, so you can see that while we all come from different dis- uh, disciplines, we and we kind of we tell a bit of a different story. You know, we might focus on the historical development of narratives. We might focus on um, local practices or local communities and different people within these communities. Um, or we, we focus more on the changes in building in the built environment. Um, we all kind of show the dif- uh, the same picture, the same kind of um, processes happening. Um, which, which are all kind of based on contestations and negotiations. And of course, across the chapters, you have different results, you have different people involved. So of course, they're not all the same. But um, nonetheless, you can, you can see these tensions arising in each chapter. Um, and I think that's a, that's a key point of the book, to kind of to show 
the various um, ways in which heritage making processes um, and kind of top-down and bottom-up processes can can result in these tensions and um, and how they can play out differently uh, in different you know regions and in, dif- in, in different um, kinds of you know heritage uh, making processes or projects. Um, yes, and that's that's kind of we kind of try to focus on the same thing and uh, but but from different perspectives. One of the things I notice, however, is that. So one of the th- sort of undercurrents that seems to sort of go beneath a lot of these uh, contributions but that don't actually seem to be the focus of any of them is this question of tourism. And you briefly mentioned it, mentioned it earlier. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how, how does tourism, particularly in China's heritage regime, sort of fit into this? Mm. Yes, you're right. Um, because that's that's because we we kind of we focus on three major issues, and and tourism is always a part of that. But it's more like more related kind of to the to the outcome or to is kind of an object uh, or reason for growing contestation. So um, as you might have might have heard already, um, we we focus more on kind of the discourses on the side uh, on the side of the state and on the side of other stakeholders. Um, and we focus on, you know, these, these kind of tensions between top, top down um, and bottom up processes and as well as social media um, you know, related discourses and emotions. So what we kind of look at is more the interaction between different groups um, and of, of stakeholders and or people. Um, and, and kind of and then as a second step, we look at why is this the case and here uh, and, and also what kind of result do we see? So. Um, in terms of why, in many of the case studies, actually, almost all of them, tourism plays a certain role. So um, mostly um, these negotiations or reinterpretations um, appear because of, um, you know, local governments being interested in, in, in promoting tourism. Um, so, so, for instance, in, in the case of um, uh, Jin Zetsui's chapter, for instance, he, he talks about um, the mayor, um, Gong Yenbo, who... Who had a very ambitious um, redevelopment project actually in, in Datong, and he he actually destroyed part of, of you know the built heritage or kind of relocated um, heritage um, you know cultural objects um, to actually kind of transform Datong from a from a city that was basically known for its coal industry um, to kind of this this new um, revitalized uh, city which was you know to attract tourists. Um, and and this then kind of created um, this you know these different um, narratives and, and and contestations due to the fact that while he was saying he was you know kind of transforming um, Datum to to you know new glory um, and saying that it was still authentic despite you know a very creatively redesigning the city uh, if if you want to put it nicely um, then you can also see the the um, you know the contestations arising from that. So, so again, it's kind of the tourism is kind of the, the, the economic objective, or as to also for him, it's also the political objective because he got to promotion, um, you know, for his efforts to develop the, tour, um, the tourism industry in that one. So, so the kind of the political and economic objectives are often related to tourism. However, we, well, we acknowledge that when we talk about that, our focus is more um, on how that then results in conflict or um, you know, or what kind of narratives or, or discourses do we see around this issue? Um, and in similar, I mean, in the case of that I just mentioned of the Gulo district, it's, it's kind of a similar case in the sense that um, here again we see that that the local government has you know has its redevelopment plans and wants to relocate local residents, and then you can see different forms of, of contestation. Some people they you know they do not want to move away. Um, they you know they can stay resist um, these re- relocation programs. Um, some of them are happy. You know, they say, oh, actually, um, you know, I'm, I'm promised compensation and I'm promised a new apartment somewhere else. Um, so, so again, it's kind of, you can see that the different discourses um, that are then developed or, or kind of um, the reasonings why certain groups behave in a certain way and how they contest um, the government's decision to, to redevelop the, the Bula district are all based on the fact that the government has this idea of um, redeveloping uh, the, you know, the Gulo district. 
So, so while it's not a key, kind of, it's not the kind, of, kind of the key focus of, um, in terms of kind of concept, conceptualization that we introduce in the introduction, for instance, or that we highlight across cases, uh, it is always part of each chapter. The book is generally divided into three sections. Um, and you, you sort of touched on uh, chapters across all three sections already. Um, but I was wondering if, um, so, so section one is reimagining the past, contested memories and contemporary issues. Um, and, and I'm wondering if we can just return to that briefly. I think you've discussed each of these examples, each of these chapters a little bit already, but I was wondering if we could sort of just, uh, return to that briefly and sort of, um, because because it's so easy to see the state as only allowing the Chinese state in particular is really only allowing one sort of discourse and and really one sort of memory. How do these contested memories sort of appear in in heritage projects? Uh, yeah, um, so I can uh, illuminate maybe a bit by um, by pointing to to again to that Hulo Hulo uh, chapter. Um, so, so again, kind of we, we look at discourses as um, kind of a form of governmentality. So you can you can see kind of that the government is kind of trying to um, kind of dominate these heritage making processes by by saying what is heritage, what is not, um, and how it should be protected. And um, this, and there we kind of we build on uh, Laura Jane Smith's work on um, authors' heritage discourse. And here we can you, know, you can see that contestation then arises by either Kind of creating counter narratives by you know explicitly not making use of, um, for example, uh, yeah, kind of kind of reframing um, you know, official discourses and saying no, this is heritage as well. We need to protect it because um, it's valuable to our community, um, etc. Um, so so of course, like if you're in this Ulo district um, chapter, for instance, you can say you can see that locals actually they talk about their local heritage in a different way. They don't speak of um, kind of, uh, of of revitalization or, or um, you know, all these big words that you would find in an official discourse, uh, but they speak of, you know, of, of their of their families and of their, of, of you know, of their memories of, of this uh, of this district. They, they talk about how, you know, about living conditions, of things that are important to them as, as residents, um, of, you know, the social connections that they've, ha- you know, that they've made uh, over the decades. So, so in a sense, they, by, by kind of creating a, a new kind of um, imaginary of, of this place, and which is linked to kind of a discourse of, of you know, of home and of, um, uh, yeah, of kind of a family and of, of, of place, uh, this is kind of a, a contestation of, of the official discourse, because the official discourse kind of just portrays um, this heritage as a kind of, a, of, as a resource or a kind of a, yeah, even if it's a resource of, of you know, of, um, every Chinese person, and that you could you could argue that if you would redevelop it, um, you know, everybody would maybe live in better living conditions or be able to use the public space, um, it is still kind of a counter narrative um, to the official discourse that, that these locals create by um, by stressing different things, by by pointing to um, you know maybe. Um, misconceptions, you know, on the part of the state that, you know, maybe people don't even want to live in a new apartment um, because it's far away um, and it's, you know, they, they would lack those social connections or people, um, you know, they, they actually, they like it if a building is a bit, um, you know, maybe a bit older, but it's still an original state and it's how they remember it and they don't want, you know, maybe it to be torn down or, or kind of re- re- rebuilt in a, in a more modern fashion. So, um, you can see that there's that, that kind of this this this, this discourse is, is a as a mean as a means to kind of shape and direct local communities and kind of tell them what is okay and what is not okay. But on the other hand, local communities can take up um, you know kind of or counter these official um, discourses. Uh, another example would be, um, for instance, the uh, my chapter actually, which which looks at the implementation of the ICH or the Intangible Cultural Heritage Transmitter Policy and the Policy for the Protection um, of, of Intangible Cultural Heritage. So 
there's basically two programs that China runs or the Chinese government runs, um, which identifies um, intangible cultural heritage practices on each government level. So the national, the provincial, uh, municipal and county level. And then it's it's kind of given a um, kind of status. You know, it's, for example, it's provincial level, um, ICH. Um, and so it's kind of put on a list uh, like the ICH set on list at the UNESCO. Um, and the sim- similar thing happens with uh, these ICH transmitters. And um, an interesting finding was that, um, you know, this, because of this um, kind of multi-level inscription process, um, kind of the, each person or each kind of ICH practice is given a different value. So if you're only a county-level transmitter, you are not as valuable or your cultural practice and your art- artistry is not as Malleable as somebody who's listed on the provincial level, so so of course there's then um, you know a hierarchy actually that is created through this inscription process, um, which leads to contestation between um, transmitters, and, and the same goes for for communities whose um, cultural practices are inscribed either on the county or the provincial level, and they then contest this by saying, why would our festival uh, be not as valuable valuable as the one that is listed on the provincial level? And, and here we can again see kind of the importance of, of discourses because then um, local communities they they would um, they would kind of use phrases that they find in um, for example in policies in, in, in the official media to kind of promote their their local heritage or, or themselves um, by stating exactly you know oh this is what this state um, you know regards as valuable heritage and this is exactly what we're doing. Um, they, they kind of they, they just use this as a kind of a legitimating um, tool to to actually try to to kind of compete in, a, in this competition that has arisen between communities between transmitters to become part of this program or kind of part of this um, kind of the state safeguarding project um, and thereby you can see that um, yeah that kind of although there's this top-down approach um, and, and the, the official discourse is kind of um, kind of create space for um, you know for the pres- preservation of heritage, um, and there's you know funds that are related to this. Um, people they kind of can use the state attention, these funds, these programs that are um, established, and as well as these narratives to their advantage to then either create a counter narrative, a counter project. Sometimes they could also just. Um, for instance, um, just decide you know how to preserve their cultural practice, or um, uh, or kind of launch their own kind of um, projects or you know, promotions of a certain heritage site or, or cultural practice to be listed. Um, whereas they kind of they then kind of use these these official discourses and, and attention to their advantage to um, either go against the state or work with the state to have their practice listed. And, and a, a good example for this is um, Selena Chan's chapter, actually, um, which discusses um, actually intangible cultural heritage in Hong Kong. So here, um, people who, who have, whose ancestors have come to Hong Kong from Changzhou, um, they, they try to preserve a, a festival, which is called the Hungry Ghost Festival. And they actually, they try to um, not only to preserve it, um, you know, on their own, on their own account by, by raising funds, by, you know, um, Cooperating with you know different uh, groups and kind of getting people interested, but they're also trying to uh, use this attention that ICH has gotten from um, you know the, the government, the central government in Beijing, but also from the Hong Kong government to kind of um, promote this Hungry Ghost Festival, um, you know, to, to be inscribed on the um, Hong Kong ICH safeguarding list, but thereby also kind of promoting um, kind of a link between. Um, Hong Kong and Changzhou on the motherland. So they kind of they um, many of these of these groups that, that are portrayed in, in Selena's chapter actually they're they're very much pro mainland and they um, they kind of tr- try to use this as a as a vehicle to also so ICH inscription systems to kind of use this as a means to um, promote kind of a closer integration um, with the mainland. Um, so so you can see that that it sometimes. Um, you know, top-down approaches and discourses can kind of, you know, can lead to, um, you know, conflicts with local people. But then on the other hand, they can open up opportunities for others to, um, you know, have their 
um, safeguarding projects legitimized or kind of get more attention in state funding uh, and also help them to pursue their own either political or economic objectives. Uh, and both of these last two examples, both your own chapter and Selena Chan's chapter, are part of section two, which is specifically looking at these questions of top-down and bottom-up processes. Um, it's something I've seen a lot in my own research. Um, I, most recently, I was looking at the UNESCO-listed Gessar epic um, and sort of how in China, how it works to be a county level or provincial level or national level, level transmitter, transmitter of, the, of this epic tradition. Um, and I do think it's really fascinating the way that this can uh, play out on the ground. Um, I guess, so uh, what, what are some of the other sort of consequences of recognition um, and, and, uh, can you, can you give another example or two maybe of how groups can better mobilize on this bottom up process? Because I feel like there are certain areas, even, I mean, there are certain ways to mobilize the discourse, but there are also certain areas where it's kind of not okay to, to advocate for these, uh, even at a, at a, in a bottom-up fashion. Is that, is that right? Um, yes, definitely. Of course, it really depends on, um, yeah, how far you go, what kind of narrative or kind of discourse you, you create. Is it, um, like, if it goes too far, if it crosses the line, then, of course, this could be, um, you know, kind of lead to state intervention and, and kind of state cracking down on, on this mobilization process. Um, I think in the book we, we we don't have any example of you know kind of maybe a violent um, or very strongly repressive um, state intervention of that kind, um, but but we do have for instance um, Sonia Laukan, he she um, she describes how the um, inscription of the Meili snow mountains in Yunnan province um, at the at the UNESCO as a World Heritage Site um, actually creates division um, among the local community. Um, because they, these mountains, they were inscribed as natural heritage site. And actually for the local community who are Tibetans, they, they of course see these mountains as something very strongly religious because they're holy, they're related to, to, uh, to their um, Buddhist beliefs. And um, so they don't really, um, they don't really openly contest, uh, you know, this, this heritage site um, or, or kind of its, its nomination, but, but they, of course, they create, they create, Mm, kind of say they have different experiences with the site and they of course use the site differently they um so they kind of they don't openly go against the state but they kind of have their own um performances their own interpretations which they keep and and safeguard um so so they kind of they by their own through their own performativity through their own um yeah just just kind of living heritage they they kind of try to to kind of go against this, this state in, in, a, in a very passive, or not passive, but in a non-confrontational manner. Um, so, so in her in her example, for instance, um, they they are, on the one hand they benefit from you know from the growing interest um, you know, of you know Chinese, especially Chinese tourists um, that are, they want to go see these mountains, and and they kind of they have an interest because um, they benefit from from this tourism site. Um, so they don't really go against, um, you know, the listing, but on the other hand, they, they kind of, they try to, um, you know, keep, keep, you know, their own, um, rituals. They, for example, you know, for instance, um, pilgrimage, um, you know, kind of, um, pilgrimage travels or, or kind of their associations with different groups around the mountain. So they kind of, they try to, um, independently, um, safeguard their traditions and and just you know continue what they've done before, um, and thereby kind of show or display an alternative understanding of, of these mountains, um, and and sometimes it's it's more about um, you know that that people don't necessarily again contest the state, but they just you know they they try to safeguard their heritage um, in you know in, in moments where the state doesn't do much. For instance, Marina Swenson. Um, she has a very interesting chapter on, um, you know, kind of on, on various, like on the, on the Taishun network, which is kind of a network that has come together to protect um, covered bridges. And this is, this is kind of a, 
an interesting fact uh, um, case because these people they they kind of they are just you know individual um, Chinese people who are interested you know in preserving heritage and and they've seen that you know covered bridges are very uh, you know very distinctive architectural um, style and and a, and a very high value um, to local communities and since they're very costly to maintain and the, the knowledge behind um, these you know how to, you know, to how to make these, um, these these bridges as well as how to maintain them is is fading away. They have come together to form this um, kind of this network of people who raise awareness and who share their emotions that are related to these bridges. So so again, they kind of they don't they don't kind of criticize the state necessarily for um, you know not putting any money into their conservation, but they you know they just form their alternative um, space. That is online to you know to share memories um, and to promote their safeguarding. So um, I would say that um, in our book we don't really yeah we don't have any direct confrontations that yet you can really see against the state, which is understandable because you know they in China it is really difficult to just openly contest the state. You, you know you might sign petitions, you might um, go protest, you might sue um, local governments. Um, but I think many have kind of tried to find more indirect routes to do so. And I think the most um, openly challenging um, kind of mobilization that you see are, in, or at least in our book, um, of course, there's many different other um, examples that, that we couldn't include that may be a bit more um, con, you know, contesting openly these state practices. Um, but in our book, for instance, you see, for example, in Jinzitsui's chapter on the, um, which I just mentioned, on Datung and the Mayor Gang Langboa, um, there are people who are like, like for example, like concert conservationists who were, you know, just deeply touched by, by how uh, Gang just, you know, changed the city landscape and with no regard for, for you know, any um, kind of, of actually even, even official practices that the State Administration for Cultural Heritage um, has actually put forward. So they then openly contest, um, you know, what, what Mayor Gang has done in the media by saying, oh, you know, he doesn't adhere to, you know, to Chinese laws. He doesn't adhere to any international heritage regulations or guidelines. Um, so this is, of course, also an open contestation. Um, but, but, but again, you kind of, you see different voices appear, different discourses that, that challenge, um, you know, the state's activities um, where you see kind of alternative ways of, or more private ways of safeguarding heritage, but it's, it's in our book at least, um, it's not this, you know, this maybe an open or even violent contestation of, of top-down practices, but it's more related to um, kind of how societies deal with, you know, with these tensions and kind of try to find uh, their own very personal way, um, which is often linked, you know, to, to kind of sharing emotions with each other to um, kind of just um, yeah, practicing their heritage nonetheless in, in whatever form they uh, and manner they, they, they want to, um, yeah, despite, you know, the, these state activities and state interpretations and practices. That, that last little bit of discussion kind of preempts the final section or includes the final section as well. Uh, on sort of public debates and heritage work, I think it, I think it speaks to the to the way that the different chapters in this volume really sort of um, overlap tremendously in in sort of understanding these questions of contestation that that it's hard to discuss one without bringing in the other examples. Um, I guess I guess uh, final question sort of about this is just you know what are some of the uh, new forms of engagements that 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 you guys have sort of seen in terms of these public debates. Um, well, basically, um, the many new forms that we do see are because they're because they're public are um, going to happen in social media or or the internet, as I just mentioned. So um, I think that's also one problem that you don't always detect, you know, any any more, you know, open contestations because they're very local. You know, they're very maybe small scale um, the incidents. So, um, you know, what we've actually found, which, which, which is increasingly becoming visible, uh, are, are just 
you know, diff, you know, so social media opens up space for people to, um, you know, not only to to connect, such as in the, in the example I just mentioned on the Taisho network, but also to to discuss and and to criticize heritage practices um, by the state, as in the as an example of um, the mayor gum. You know, there there's there's just an, this open space where people can, you know, what some people might side uh, side with um, the mayor and say, oh no, actually we 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 appreciate what he's doing, and this will definitely, um, you know, improve the, you know, the landscape of, of the city. Um, the other um, locals would say no. You know, he's talk- absolutely changing. You know, the, the the character of Datum and also, you know, its rich heritage and and just kind of um, destroying many of of its, you know, of its very valuable um, his historic past. Um, so you can see how these different groups then negotiate. Or, or criticize each other on the media, and this can be on on Weibo. This can be on you know, but just by by being cited in you know, even in traditional media. You know, sometimes, for instance, um, you know, the conservationists who may you know have links to to media outlets might might like you know publish an article or be interviewed for an article. Um, so, so it's it's not necessarily the case that um, you know that the traditional media is only you know pro state and only official you know narratives come through but um and not not all social media you know is, is heavily restricted but the state actually allows um a certain you know form of um discussion you know that doesn't go beyond you know a certain red line um to to take place and there, that's where you can really see how complex these issues actually are so it's not always this black and white kind of picture of the state versus local communities but it's um there's just so many different interests, obviously, among among the local community, um, and who are just so so much more closely connected to each other through these social media um, and, and the internet in, in general um, that they that they can actually engage and they um, and they strongly do. So that's why we included this uh, you know in this this thir- third section because many of the the discourses um, that you see in these other examples that we have. They, they mainly play out, um, you know, in in this uh, digital space, um, which which three of our um, of our chapters actually highlight. So, as I said, Jin Zetsui, he he looks at social media discourses by different stakeholders uh, as well as traditional media. So he looks at also, for instance, at Nang um, Yambo and and how he kind of um, legitimizes and and frames, um, you know, his his this vision of of revitalizing um, Datum. Whereas Louis Tam and her um, in her article or in her chapter on the digital temple, she also looks at you know um, different um, so social media, but also different uh, just voices of of people that have also been captured in surveys on you know on what to do with this temple and and whether or not it would be okay to transform some of it into a hotel or a restaurant, etc. Um, so so I think social media is increasingly becoming. Um, a platform for for discussion, but also a, a means to contest the state, um, at least to a certain extent, because you know it's 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 still kind of a, a, a way of um, you know bring, and having new ideas and kind of bring um, putting them out there, um, which can ignite an ex- like a, a comment can ignite a whole discussion, and then this will um, you know lead to uh, maybe maybe a much bigger discussion, which the state then has to react to. So, so often, you know, something that may have um, been discussed in traditional media or social media then has to be kind of picked up by the state and thereby the, the state doesn't necessarily like just react and, and um, adhere to whatever the public wants. But um, because it's so open and because um, it's more visible than, you know, smaller, more um, local um, forms of contestation, they're often more... Um, yeah, maybe even more successful because they can put pressure um, on certain, you know, certain sides of the debate, and, and I think that's uh, this is very much related to the emotions that are associated with, um, you know, this heritage making process and how personal actually heritage is, and and you know how how the different interpretations and memories um, associated with heritage are uh, just you know just clash um, in, in when when they come into contact with you know different um, narratives and, and uh, practices from you know of the official state authorities or from other stakeholders etc 
So um, that's why we have this third, this third section. Um, so where the first, whereas the first section just more looks at reinterpretation of heritage um, and the you know the contestation between different memories and, and imaginaries, um, and the second ch- uh, part looks more at um, tensions arising due to top-down and bottom-up processes. The third um, section is a bit more about these um, newly emerging discussions on, on social media and the emotions that are attached to that. But nevertheless, in all of these different parts, you do see um, you know, the, how important um, this, these discourses or narratives are. You, you, you always have you know, the sense of that the state is there to, you know, to use heritage as a tool of governmentality, and you always see some form of um, reaction. So either this, this is the contestation, um, as I've explained earlier, or it can also be kind of a, a use um, of, of the state attention um, and, or kind of more, more open discussion um, for, the, you know, for the protection of heritage, as in the Taishong case, where it's not very you know, confrontational against the state, but you know, it's actually seen as an opportunity um, you know, to come together and, and safeguard um, you know, these bridges. Um, so, so you can really kind of see that, there's, uh, that these things are happening across the board, but each chapter highlights a different region or different site. It highlights different stakeholders. It highlights, um, you know, maybe a bit more the, the discursive side or the, the clashes between top-down and bottom-up um, processes or social media. So that's why we have these different sections, um, although we always focus on discourses, governmentality, and contestation. Fantastic. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, this is... I mean, these are all really important issues, not just for for China studies. I think, I think, but also for folklore, folklorists and anthropologists as well. As we start looking, particularly at the role of social media, I really like that as a as sort of the place where you end is the role of social media uh, in in sort of pushing some of these debates uh, relative to heritage and how responsive different uh, different groups might be to that. Really wonderful. Um, so uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, and I was just wondering before we let you go if you'd uh, if you'd tell us what you're working on now, Christina. Yes, gladly. So I'm at the moment I'm working on um, actually another book, <laughs> um, which is called Heritage Politics in China: The Power of the Past, um, and this is uh, but yeah different because it's a monograph that I um, am co-writing with um, Dr. Zhu Ujia, he's, he's an anthropologist at um, Australian National University, and he's actually an, an anthropologist um, working at the School of Archaeology and Anthropology. Um, so what we, what we try to do here is um, somewhat related because we also um, look at these, these forms of you know, negotiating, contesting, and resisting heritage-making processes, but we look at um, how, how, this, you know, how these processes um, appear at different scales. So we kind of look at the interaction between, um, for example, the international and the national scale. We look at, you know, like, for example, how the national affects local or like county level, for instance. Um, so this is kind of where we focus on. And, and here again, we kind of have this distinction between um, discourses on the one hand, but then practices. And, um, and our book, kind of, this, this new book, is, is different in a sense that it's because it's a mono, monography, we look at, um, we have three case studies. Um, so on the one hand, it's Imeshan, which is uh, in Western China, and it's, it's a bit more of a, um, again, also related to tourism and, and you know, kind of how um, local um, kind of state authorities kind of try to uh, use it and kind of re- rebrand it as a tourism site and then, okay, or have done that and how it kind of affects that has had on people. Um, we also look at um, Xi'an and how this is then related to also religious heritage, you know, and, and Muslim, small Muslim heritage, um, but also how the kind of the whole city is rebranded um, as, uh, you know, especially under the Van Belt Road Initiative. Um, and then we also look at net, um, intangible cultural heritage um, and its display uh, in, in museums, for instance, in Nanjing. So we, we kind of have um, a bit more, like in contrast to to the um, to the edited volume that has now come out. Um, the edited volume is a bit more a uh, collection of very rich single case studies that all kind of talk to each other in various ways. 
um, looking at similar things, but then highlighting different, for example, highlighting the social media aspect or the reinterpretation aspect. And this book then is a bit different because it looks at this, you know, the interaction between scales and um, each of these case studies then pop up in, in each chapter. So it's a bit more detailed um, concerning these case studies. And uh, in order to kind of show how um, heritage making processes and responses, um, yeah, kind of are, yeah, unfold over time, how it impacts state society relations, um, as well as modernization and nation building processes in China. And, and I mean, we, at the end, we kind of try to provide an outlook on and a kind of a comparison to kind of to show a bigger picture of how China fits into the global um, development and, and how, you know, the Chinese story um, relates to you know, heritage making processes, etc. in other countries. Sounds like a really fascinating project and a really important contribution to the field. Um, well, thank, uh, thank you so much, Christina, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, thanks very much and take care. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, take care. <laughs>